It's good to see everyone this morning. We uh, are uh, looking forward to launching back into our study of the Gospel of John. We took a little five-week reprieve. We had a Thanksgiving message. We did an Advent series uh, in the month of December. And then uh, last week, we uh, had a special message to kick off the new year. But we're back now. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and our text for today is verses 35 through 51. So we're going to finish out chapter 1 today. Eight or nine messages to get us to the point of closing out chapter 1. But I have so thoroughly enjoyed my study of this gospel. And so I am excited today to look at Jesus' first disciples. Jesus' first disciples. So let me ask you a question. What floats your boat? What is the thing that invigorates you? What is it that motivates you to get up and get going each and every morning? Kathy and I were on the road and we were talking about this just the other day. I think, I think it's a viable question for us as Christians. I think it's an introspective question to ask ourselves, what is it that drives us? What makes us tick? <laughs> I mean, I think if we went out and we polled the neighborhoods in the area in Anvil and we asked them all, hey, what is it that really drives you? What makes you get up every day? I think we'd get all kinds of answers. But I think the answer to the question for the Christian is different than what we would receive from those who are in the world. I got into the ministry a long, long time ago in 1985, and I got into the ministry because I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people know about Jesus Christ and the salvation that only he provides to sinners like us. I got into the ministry because I wanted to help people that are hurting I wanted to help people that are struggling in their Christian life, and they need assistance, and they need help. Not that I'm the end-all, be-all, but God, in His providence, in His sovereignty, uses people, flawed people, like me, like us, to come alongside and to help others and to show others the way. You know, as we come to this passage of Scripture this morning, that's what this is really all about, except there aren't people that are being used as the example, there is Jesus who is being used as the example. And he is our primary example in this life, right? We are to be like him. We're to walk like he walks. As a Christian, I love to listen to other people, other fellow believers share the circumstances that led them to faith in Christ. To me, it's so edifying, it's so affirming to hear how God has worked in their lives. Of course, every opportunity I get, I love to share how God has worked in my life as well. And while the stories of how God moved and how he worked in our lives may be somewhat different for each of us, the truth of the matter is he saves sinners like us in just one way, right? Just one way. There's just one way to the Father, And that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Just over the course of the past month or so, Kathy and I gathered with dozens and dozens of people in various settings. And in almost every one of those encounters, we were were so blessed to have the conversation turn to the grace of God. 
how God was working in our lives. Well, as you know, we've been working our way through this gospel, this gospel of John, before we took that break that I mentioned between Thanksgiving and Christmas. But now we're back in the throes of this unique account of much of the public ministry of Jesus. And when I say public ministry, I think you know what I mean by that. If you don't, what I mean is there was this launch point in the life of Jesus when he made himself known to the public as the God-man. And when we do the math, we find that Jesus' public ministry lasted about three years. These were the three years that led up to his death on the cross. The truth is, God chose not to reveal much of the details of the life of Jesus in the first 30 years of his life, but we have been given so much rich truth in the gospel accounts that detail the final years of his life on the earth. Since it's been a while, I want to take a moment to bring everyone back up to speed. The Apostle John begins his gospel account of Jesus with a very clear statement as to who Jesus really is. He begins in verses 1 through 4 by unequivocally stating that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the logos, the visible, tangible expression of God. Jesus is the eternal God, the creator of all things, who, according to verse 14, came to the earth in a physical body and dwelt among men God the Father sent God the Son to be the light of the world, the exclusive giver of eternal life. He was indeed the God-man, God incarnate, truly God and truly man. And early in this captivating gospel narrative, the Apostle John is careful to lay out the ministry of John the Baptist, who was sent as the forerunner of Jesus. In other words, John the Baptist was the one who was sent to pave the way and announce the coming of Jesus. I got to do a lot of cool things when I was in working in government in uh, the 80s and 90s uh, back in Illinois. Uh, one of the cool things that I remember about that responsibility that I was given was that the president of the United States was coming into town, and for some weird reason they picked me for the Secret Service to come and to give all of the important details as to his uh, arrival they were there to uh, make sure that everything was safe, and so I was the provider of documents and maps and all these kinds of things so that they would make sure that the president was safe upon his arrival. There were other dignitaries that came into town since I had worked with the Secret Service. They thought, well, he didn't screw that up, so we're going to uh, you know, let him talk with these other people as well. And, and so it was really a cool thing for me to be able to experience these guys that I talked with, the Secret Service, were sort of the advance team for the president. When we look at the gospel narrative, we find that John the Baptist was sort of a one-man advance team for Jesus. He was the advance man. He was the one that came to pave the way to get things ready for the coming of Jesus and the launch of his public ministry, that three-year period of time prior to him going to the cross. The Apostle John's careful to mention, though, in verse 8 of chapter 1, that John the Baptist wasn't the light. He was just sent to testify about the light. But because of his significant role in the preparation of the public ministry of Jesus, we learn a little bit about John the Baptist here in verses 19 through 24. 
we essentially receive a blow-by-blow description of John the Baptist's fascinating encounter with the religious elite of the day uh, who wanted to know just exactly who he was, which is a legitimate question, right? John the Baptist was accumulating quite a following. He was going around, he was preaching, he was baptizing people everywhere he went. And if you recall in that encounter with the priests and the Levites, they asked him a series of questions about who he was. They began to ask him the the big million-dollar question, if he was indeed the Christ. Are you the Messiah? He said, no. No. They said, well, are you Elijah? How about the prophet? Are you Elijah or the prophet? And he said, no. But because the priests and the Levites were seemingly out of guesses, but still on the hook to try to find out who John the Baptist was, they simply asked him straight up, then who are you? There's something about you that's unique and different than all of these other people. Who are you? And so John the Baptist tells them in very plain language here in verses 24 through 28. Let's take a look at that. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am worthy to untie. And then verse 28, these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And so now, here we are today finishing up chapter 1 with the story of Jesus' first disciples. Now, you remember, everything that we've been considering here in the Gospel of John is happening at warp speed. (laughs) We're now receiving a day-by-day account of all that was happening in the life of Jesus. Verse 29, and the next day. Verse 35, and the next day. Verse 43, and the next day. Everything is happening so very quickly, primarily because of the faithful groundwork that was laid by John the Baptist, who was the prototypical disciple of Jesus. In its simplest form, a disciple is a follower, a learner, a student. This is what this passage before us today helps us to understand. This is what it's all about. Jesus' first disciples. You know, unfortunately, there are many today in the pulpit and in the pew who have a twisted view of what true Christian discipleship is. When Jesus gave this great command in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, to to go and to make disciples, he wasn't talking about existing disciples going out to create followers of themselves, but to go out and make followers of Jesus. And there's a big difference to that. It seems like so many today are more interested in creating a following for themselves rather than a following for Christ. And sadly, I've witnessed so many Christians over the years who, who love to puff out, puff out their chest by giving their credentials. I did this. I, I did that. I discipled these people. Me, me, me. If someone you've ministered to becomes a notch in your belt, you've totally missed it. And your efforts aren't going to be rewarded by the Lord because you made it about you and not about him. Our job is to point people to Jesus, to make disciples of Jesus, not ourselves. So what floats our boat? 
What is it that makes us tick? What is it that we really, truly are invigorated by? It should be, at least partially for the Christian, it should be us trying as best we can to honor the Lord by reproducing ourselves and others. Isn't that what we're to do as parents? We're to reproduce ourselves in our children, to, to give them the same values that we have, to point them to Christ, to point them to the truth of God's Word. It's a hard job. It's a really hard job. Some of you have a lot of kids, which makes it even harder. Some of you have one child, two children, makes it a little bit easier, but it's still difficult to raise our kids to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are we doing that? Our first responsibility in the area of discipleship, if we're to go in to make disciples, our first order of business should be in our families, right? Right? That's our primary responsibility. God has given us a built-in set of those who we are to disciple. Husbands, you're to disciple your wife. Husbands and wives, mom and dad, you're to disciple your children. So we come to this passage today. I love this, and it's an extensive passage. We've been taking smaller chunks as we've moved our way through uh, this first chapter, but this is a big chunk because it's one big giant story here, and it's a beautiful portrait of what a true disciple of Jesus looks like. And so with all that in mind, let's go to the text here, verse 35, and let's read it through verse 51, and then we're going to find four distinguishing marks of a true disciple of Jesus. Verse 35, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought them to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to Philip, Follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the, the same city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in which there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see much greater things than these. 
And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Isn't that great? Like, we get a glimpse into the first disciples of Jesus. All this stuff is happening quick. I mean, there was just the encounter with Jesus and John the Baptist, which led then to the baptism of Jesus. And now all this stuff is happening. The public ministry of Jesus has begun. So let me point out in the text here today four distinguishing marks of a true disciple of Jesus. There should be some notes in your bulletin if you would like to take notes this morning. Four distinguishing marks of a true disciple of Jesus. First, a true disciple of Jesus is a humble deflector. A humble deflector. He or she puts all the attention on Jesus and not on themselves. Look again at verse 35. Verse 35 Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him, and they followed Jesus. Now, we have spoken of the selfless nature of John the Baptist in previous messages, but his humility is so evident here. His actions back up his words. We know that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I actually literally heard a guy say to me one time, I am the most humble guy you've ever met. (laughs) I'm like, there we have it. Everybody come by. Here he is, the most humble guy on the planet. If we think we're humble, we're not humble, right? God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We need grace. We need the sustaining grace of God. We need the empowering grace of God in our lives. At the root of almost every sin is pride. God's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. John the Baptist, honestly, I can say this about him. He would never say it about himself. One of the most humble men I've ever in my life encountered through the pages of Scripture I mean, think about this guy. He deflected, constantly deflected all of the attention that came his way. Most people would get the big head. They would get the big, huge bubble head. People are coming to them and thinking that they are really something, but not John the Baptist. Why? Because he was a true, humble, deflective servant of Jesus, a true disciple of Jesus. It was all about Jesus and not about himself. And this is evident as John the Baptist's top two followers left the comfort and familiarity of knowing John the Baptist to follow after Jesus, whom they just met. They just met him. They just met him. But this is what a true disciple does, right? He points people to Jesus. John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples, Andrew and Peter, and he looks out at Jesus, who's walking ahead of them, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And this is the second instance, by the way, that John the Baptist publicly identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. 
And so here John the Baptist has his second encounter with Jesus, the one whose sandal he's unworthy to untie. And it's much like his first encounter. All of the attention turns to Jesus. A true disciple, a true disciple is a humble deflector. Second, a true disciple follows Jesus no matter the cost. A true disciple follows Jesus no matter the cost. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed him. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you'll see. And so they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak And again, whenever we see the word John, now we know that this was written by the Apostle John, right? He's the one who wrote this gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. So when we see, so he's not using his own name here. Whenever we see the word John in this gospel, it's referring to John the Baptist, okay? So he says in verse 40, one of the two who heard John, John the Baptist, speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, it's hard not to notice the immediacy of Andrew and Peter following after Jesus, right? I mean, from what we can tell, they just literally drop everything, and they turn and follow Jesus. That's what a disciple does. They follow. No matter the cost, a true disciple will follow Jesus anywhere he goes. But notice here in this encounter that Jesus doesn't ask them who they're seeking. This is obvious, right? They turned and they started to follow him. But instead, he asked them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? I I think the purpose for Jesus' question is to challenge them to consider their motives. There are always two sides to the coin in the true spiritual conversion of man, the who and the what. They, they obviously were not intending to, they, 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 they were obviously in, intending to follow after Jesus, but what were they seeking in doing that? And this is striking to me. Think about this. Andrew and Peter woke up that day and had planned to travel around with John the Baptist. And then they have this encounter with Jesus. And when John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, everything changed. Their plans changed. Where they had planned to sleep that night changed. From the get-go, these new disciples were all in. Now, before we move on, it's important to realize the significance of this title, the Lamb of God, said twice here in this first chapter. Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. Now, the Jews would immediately know and make this connection to what the prophets had said about the coming Messiah. Both Jeremiah and Isaiah spoke about the coming lamb that that would be led to the slaughter, meaning that one day the Messiah would come to die in order to provide redemption for Israel. And so when John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, or the Lamb sent by God, they believed that he was the Messiah, In other words, they believe that Jesus was the anointed one sent by God to be the spotless lamb that God would accept as payment for the sins of all those who would believe in him. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. 
This Peter, who eventually becomes a disciple of Jesus, one of the 12 apostles, the whole first half of the book of Acts is all of his wanderings as he preaches that great sermon at the Feast of Pentecost. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Peter is the trailblazer for the church, so much so that a false religion thinks that he's a pope, the first pope. Wrong. But Peter eventually writes this. Down the road, he eventually writes this. about Just exactly about what we're talking about. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So only the shed blood of Jesus can pay for sin. In the Old Testament... It was only through the shedding of blood in animal sacrifices that man could be cleansed from sins. Because as Leviticus 17 and verse 11 says, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. But an animal's blood didn't offer permanent atonement, only a temporary covering for the sin of man. The whole Old Testament points to the coming of the Messiah who would provide full redemption for the sin of those who would believe in him. One of the most cherished passages of Scripture in all the Bible as it relates to this, Hebrews chapter 10. And so I invite you to turn there. We're going to look at a few passages here as we move on. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. For the law since it has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. He's talking about the insufficiency of these yearly blood sacrifices. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. The Old Testament system all pointed to Christ. All 100% pointed to the insufficiency of these yearly coverings, these yearly atonements for sin. Jesus had not yet come And so there needed to be a temporary covering year after year after year after year for the people. But Jesus came. 
We're seeing the account of his launch of his public ministry. Why did he come? He came because of the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrificial system. None of that was going to save anybody. It was only going to cover them. Jesus would come and be the once for all sacrifice for sin. Isn't it remarkable? You know, we would have a completely different lens we would be looking through a completely different lens if we were Old Testament saints. We have the beauty and the benefit of having the, the totality of the Word of God where we can see these, these sacrificial uh, instances year after year after year after year in the Old Testament, but we know it was pointing to Jesus. It wasn't as clear to the Old Testament saints. But Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. No longer do we need this ceremonial law that you must do this and this and this and this and this to cover over your sin. You don't need that anymore because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, it's done. It's finished. That's what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. I have accomplished my purpose. So this three-year period that leads up to him going to the cross is we're right in the throes of it. We've just been introduced to the first disciples of Jesus. And so as we go back to our passage in John, what is so amazing about Andrew and Peter following after Jesus is that they at least were somewhere, some what aware that the Messiah was going to have to die to provide that redemption, right? They knew that the, that, the, that the animal sacrifice, they had to die. And so all of this pointed to Jesus and the Messiah who would take the place of the Old Testament sacrificial system, but they knew even remotely that this Messiah that they decided to follow, they woke up this this particular day, they're following after John the Baptist. They're introduced to the Lamb of God. They immediately think about what Jeremiah has said about the Lamb of God, what Isaiah has said about the Lamb of God. And they think, this is him, Messiah, the, 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 the Christ, the anointed one. We're going to follow him. <laughs> they change everything and they follow after Jesus. That's what a disciple does. So they knew that this one that they were going to follow was going to have to die to provide that redemption. So they follow him not knowing when his death was going to happen. Was it going to happen today? How about tomorrow? What would their association be with the one that would die? But it didn't matter. It didn't matter to Andrew and Peter. They were all in, no matter the cost. And by the way, all but one of Jesus' eventual disciples, the twelve, 12 apostles, they were eventually martyred for their faith in Jesus. You know, the only one that wasn't, the one who wrote this, John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos and died of natural causes. All of the other disciples, every single one of them, every single one of them were martyred for their faith. That's what they took on when they became a disciple of Jesus. Because they knew that eventually Jesus was going to have to die. Well, how would he die? Of natural causes? No, he would die at the hands of sinful men who would put him to death on a cross. He voluntarily allowed these people to put him on the cross and to kill him. 
because he came for a purpose, to die in the place of sinners, the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. This is remarkable. We're seeing it all unfold before our very eyes. Third, a true disciple of Jesus introduces his family to him. A true disciple of Jesus introduces his family to him. Look at verse 41. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. So there's a progression here in the text that we don't want to miss. Notice that Andrew is introduced to Jesus by John the Baptist, and then he goes and tells his brother Peter, we found the Messiah, he says. So immediately he goes and he gets Peter and he, and he takes him and he introduces him to Jesus. Of course, Jesus already knew who he was. Why? Because first, Jesus is omniscient. He's God, which means he knows everything. But secondly, because the Father, get this, this can be missed here, but this was so profound to me this week. But secondly, the, the reason that Jesus knew who Peter was was because the Father had already given Peter to Jesus. Peter's name was already written in the Lamb's book of life. Who's the Lamb? The Lamb of God. Who's the Lamb? Jesus is the Lamb. It's his book. This book was given to him by the Father, and it included all those whom he would go to the cross and to die in their place. All of this was done before the foundation of the world. Peter's name was already written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus knew who he was. Let me just quickly, I wanted to see if we had time for this. I think we do. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. I want to show you this. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. How does Jesus know Peter? Cephas. How does he know him? Well, he knows him because his name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. His name was given to him by the Father. Verse 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the Book of Life, and I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. So the Son who is given the names in the book of life is responsible for them now. Okay? So Jesus not only knows Peter intellectually because he's God, omnisciently, he knows him because he has a prior relationship with him. His name is already included in the Lamb's book of life. This is cool stuff. If you have trusted as Jesus, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior from sin, Jesus had already been given your name in the book of life before he went to the cross. Jesus died for particular people on the cross of Calvary. Go, go, go to the right a little bit here. Revelation 17 and verse 8. Uh, I just want to show you this. Uh, 
Revelation 17 and verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. What I want you to see here is that this book of life was given and written before the foundation of the world. Jesus wasn't given the book after the cross. This is part of the covenant of redemption that God covenanted with Jesus, who is God, to come to the earth to die in the place of particular people on the cross of Calvary. All those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. He's the Lamb. It's His book. It was given to Him. You know, all throughout the Gospels, we'll see this as we go through the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I'm not going to lose a single one of them. No one's strong enough to snatch any of these that were written in the Lamb's book of life out of my hand. You see how all this is coming together. You see the the, the amazing thing that God did for us as sinners to send Jesus to come and to die in our place. So Jesus knows Peter. He knows him intimately. His name's in the book. So he came to the earth to personally die in his place. But this is a mark of a true disciple of Jesus. They're eager to introduce others to the Messiah. And who are we closer to than our families? It would be a tragedy that God had put us in our families, sovereignly placed us, providentially placed us in our families, and we never tell them about Jesus. Why do you think we're in our families? Why do you think we're in the neighborhoods that we're in? Why do you think you work in the workplace that you work in? All because God has sovereignly placed you there to be his disciple, to tell other people about Jesus. Who are we closer to than our families? If you are a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, then you will want to introduce your family members to him as well. And that's exactly what, Pe- what Andrew does here with Peter. Fourth, a true disciple of Jesus introduces his friends to him. Look at verse 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. So the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day. The next day, Jesus goes into the Galilee region and he encounters this man, Philip. He just launched his public ministry. He now has Andrew and Peter who are at his side and he goes into the Galilee region. He runs into this man, Philip, and he tells Philip to follow him. Jesus sees Philip He immediately tells him to follow him, and so he does. Guess what? Philip's name was in the book. 
Philip's name was in the book. Just like Andrew and Peter, Philip realizes that Jesus is the Messiah and he believes in him and his belief leads him to be desiring to be an authentic disciple of Jesus. And so Philip immediately exhibits the mark of a true disciple. What does he do? He goes and he finds his friend Nathaniel to introduce him to Jesus. And so Philip says, we found the Messiah. It's Jesus from Nazareth. It's interesting here. Philip uses the plural we, which means most likely that Andrew and Peter are there. They're disciples too. We here. He's identifying himself with these others who are disciples of Jesus. Nathaniel immediately says, He's from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? I was in Nazareth, and we're going to be in Nazareth, I believe, uh, this coming November on our trip to Israel. Small, quaint, purposeful, I believe. Jesus wasn't from the big city. He wasn't a city slicker. His parents were not, you know, in the intellectual or financial elite. So Nathaniel knows that Nazareth is not a big deal. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Small, insignificant town in the lower Galilee region of Israel. As far as I know, Nazareth's nowhere mentioned in the Old Testament record. Small little town. So Philip tells Nathaniel, come and see for yourself. Let me ask you, do, do your friends know? Do they know? that you're a disciple of Jesus? Have have you taken the time to introduce them to Him? We should be telling our friends to come and see Jesus. Come and see Jesus. (laughs) It's a mark of a true disciple. I was talking to someone in our church the other day. Great conversation. Love these conversations. They were telling me that they've been trying to witness to one of their friends. Part of that investment was inviting them to church. Oh, they, they told them about Jesus, but they said, you know, you, every week at our church, we talk about Jesus. We talk about the need for us to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord and to cling to Jesus and to walk for, G- for Jesus in this life. We should be so convinced that Jesus is the Messiah that we want everyone to know about him. And then fifth, a true disciple of Jesus acknowledges him as the coming king. Look how he closes it out. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see much greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him and he says, He's truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, it would appear that Nathaniel 
had come to find Jesus because of Philip. But of course, Jesus wasn't lost. Philip was lost. And so in all reality, Jesus came to Philip. Providentially, sovereignly came to Philip. As Luke 19.10 says, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so when Jesus says there's no deceit in Nathaniel, he's referring to Nathaniel's blunt response to Philip, which was, how can anything good come from Nazareth? So basically, Jesus is saying that it was important for Nathaniel to see Jesus for himself. So Nathaniel says what? How do you know me? Legitimate question. And Jesus says, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, and I saw you there. Perhaps Jesus physically saw Nathanael, but more than likely, this is another reference to Jesus' omniscience. He knows all things, and not to be missed here. Jesus doesn't just know the physical things about us. He knows our hearts, and he knew Nathanael's heart. And so here we find Nathanael's point of belief and conversion. He answers Jesus and says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. They knew that the Messiah was coming and that he would be king over Israel. Part of his acknowledgement of Jesus was that he was the Messiah, the anointed Christ, the king that was prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures like Micah 5.2 and Zephaniah 3.15 and Zechariah 9.9. So Jesus says to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see so many more great things than this. If you're impressed by me saying that to you and knowing that, just wait. There are many more things of much greater magnitude ahead. And then Jesus said to Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Essentially, that Jesus is the link He is the link between the Father and those whom He created. Jesus had come to reveal God and His truth to man. After all, we know that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. By the way, this is the first of 13 times in the Gospel of John that the phrase Son of Man is used. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man, the perfect God-man. I have enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed the reminder that John the Baptist was the real deal. He was a true disciple of Christ. Selfless, for sure. Humble, loyal, tenacious, dependable. As we can continue in our exposition of the Gospel of John, with the exception of a brief mention in John chapter 3, John the Baptist now fades from the scene. Jesus takes center stage. When you go to Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, you find the 12 disciples' names, the 12 apostles. They're all named there. Guess what? The names of these four men at the end of chapter 1, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel are all listed there. His first disciples made it to the end All of them were eventually martyred because they followed Jesus.
In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to these very men, He said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? As disciples of Christ, in His providential plan, He has determined to use people like you and me to tell other people about Jesus. Romans 10, how will they hear without someone who tells them? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. God's given us a responsibility. This is what disciples do. We tell people about Jesus. We help people with their life. Pastor Flip and I get to do this full time to try as best we can, as flawed as we may be, to come alongside people and to help them to know about Jesus. But that doesn't get the rest of you off the hook. We're all in the same category of being a disciple. God has just put you in different spots to do that. Jesus' first disciples. Man, I love this. I hope you've been challenged by the Word of God today. And ask yourself, where do you measure up? on the spectrum of being a true, faithful disciple of Jesus. Our Father, we come to You today, none of us worthy of even being associated with You because we are sinners. We've been saved by Your amazing grace. And now, we have been called to be Your ambassadors. To be those whom You would use to propagate Your truth, the truth about you and what you have provided for sinners like us, to point people to the reality that if they believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. And Lord, we are humbled by that. We look at these men and the immediacy of their following after Jesus, dropping everything, literally dropping everything and following after Jesus. Protect us from the comforts that we have in this life. May we be more like these men where we are all about Your Son, the Lord Jesus, and telling others about Him, modeling Him before others. We thank You for making us Your disciple. We thank You for giving us that privilege to be called a Christian, to have the same name as Your Son. May we take our responsibility seriously to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow, 100% follow after Jesus. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, because He is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.